Hello, and welcome back to the Performance Cycling Podcast. I'm Todd Norwood, here with my co-host, Jason Hammond. Hey, Todd. How's it going? You know, going well, taking my shelter in place one day at a time and you know, getting ready to ride a little bit further since my county has relaxed our restrictions recently. Yeah, they're uh, starting to allow a few more people to go back to work in, in my county, so we may be able to have have as many bike rides as we want pretty soon. And a normal non-distance podcast, perhaps. Yep. So today we are distance podcasting. So here's our regular disclaimer of sorry if there's any technical issues. But I guess I guess we could say that for any any of our episodes, not just the, uh, the remote ones. Fair fair enough. Although we have uh, additional hurdles thrown in here. Yep. Um, and we'll just blame blame everybody else who's uh, you know streaming their Netflix right now for slowing down our up and download speed. Yep. So I actually have a bit of a follow up to the VO2 Max episode this week, and there were a few papers that didn't quite make the cut for the first episode, but I think they're worth talking about. And then at the end, we're going to talk about another area, which is joint specific pedaling power. So. There are a couple studies that looked at which joint produces how much power uh, within a cyclist's um, you know, pedal stroke, and then at different intensities and different cadences, how does that, that recruitment pattern change? So it should be pretty interesting. Um, first off, though, we're going to start with some of these follow-ups for the VO2max episode. So I have one paper about master's athletes, and they... They had 86 men and 49 women, which is a nice big study, especially for sports science. And they followed their VO2 max over a few years of training and a few years of work. And they looked at the drop-off in VO2 max and tried to correlate it with you know, certain characteristics of the athletes. And for men specifically, they had the greatest loss in VO2 max. The ones that had the greatest loss in VO2 max had the greatest loss in lean body mass as well. And for women, it was the greatest decrease in training volume. The athletes who had the greatest decrease in training volume had the greatest decrease in VO2 max. So that could indicate that for men, there is a big importance in lean body mass in determining their VO2 max. And this, this could go to back to our VO2max episode. There could be a peripheral limitation on VO2max, and this study could show evidence, especially for master's men, that the peripheral adaptation of muscle mass is sort of the limiter in their ability to hit that high VO2max. So this might also imply that there may be a benefit to, brace yourself, resistance training uh, in the master's athlete. Yep, absolutely. I think that uh, this is yeah, this is also an indication that you need to definitely stimulate some uh, hypertrophy in those muscles, especially as a master's athlete. But I think we could extrapolate this to anyone who is concerned about uh, you know their total muscle mass. If you're a really small rider or a really lean rider, you could be uh, you could stand to benefit from some resistance training. So the second paper uh, was actually about. Uh, non-athletes, but it was non-athletes who had high VO2 max. So they had they had 12 people, six with normal VO2 max, normal for a sedentary person, 
all 12 of these people had no training background at all. And half were normal, specifically VO2 maxes below 49. And the other half had VO2 maxes over 62.5. Wow. And For, uh, an untrained. Yeah, or n- no history of training. So okay. we, we don't know anything about like their occupation or anything like that. But the, the 12 uh, men were age and weight matched so that... You know, of the six who had low VO2 max and of the six who had high VO2 max, the weights that they compared were about the same, so there wasn't any skewing. Same with age. And they measured blood volume, maximum stroke volume, and maximum cardiac output. And if you remember from the VO2 max episode, cardiac output, maximal cardio, cardiac output is like the creme de la creme of what gives you a high VO2 max. They saw no difference in stroke volume. They saw no difference in cardiac output but they saw a difference in blood volume. Specifically, the sedentary individuals with high VO2 max had 15 15.8% more blood per kilogram than the low VO2 max individuals. So, you know, what what's going on here a little bit? And um, the what's interesting is, like I said, the cardiac output is a big indicator of your VO2 max. They saw no difference in cardiac output. The stroke volume was also the same, um, but yeah, the, the blood volume was higher and that seemed to be an indicator or potentially a cause for the higher VO2 max. I mean, we do know that with training, you see an increase in blood volume. Like that's one of the adaptations from uh, endurance training. But there's so many other adaptations that happen with endurance training that might influence VO2 max. Uh, it's just hard for me to see like what you know that by itself is doing. But clearly, from the things they measured, that was the thing that they measured that indicated uh, or was correlated with the change. So, what did the the authors hypothesize, if anything? Um, they actually chose not to speculate. They sort of just said, "Here's." Here's the information we have. It is only 12 individuals or six per group, so um, you know, not the biggest study. But um, you know, they just said here's an interesting conversation point. And I think one thing that's important, like you said, blood volume does increase when you exercise. And um, I looked up a study where they they had bedridden individuals and measured their blood volume, and it decreased dramatically as they spent more time just staying in bed. And it's it's interesting because it's it's sort of like we don't have specific exercises, we don't have specific workouts for increasing blood volume. It's just exercise in general increases your blood volume. And this could be another indication. The conclusion that I'm choosing to draw is that this could be another indication that base training is really important. Because base training is the time when we really focus on increasing the blood volume getting the miles in, really making these base adaptations that it appears the higher VO2 max group has made. Even though they're untrained, somehow they got it. Either it's genetic. The authors did say it could be genetic. um, And it could also be occupation or um, other habits that aren't specifically training, like uh, diet or something. But I think the takeaway for us is, yeah, blood volume is important, so don't skimp on the base. Get those long miles in. You know, use your winters usefully. Yeah, that's that's super interesting. Um, and yeah, I guess that's you know, if 
if you knew, I mean, other than what you're saying, like base, yes, that makes sense. Um, specific workouts. I think this is some, something we came back to the on the VO2 Max episode was, hey, if we knew specific workouts where we were able to change uh, the AVO2 difference, maybe that's the thing we would do more of. And maybe it's the same thing here. If we knew what the workout was specifically, like we knew oh, I did this interval set that would make my blood volume increase, then that's what we would you know spend more time doing. Yeah, it is interesting. And, and again, from the VO2 max episode, what's our limiter? Are we limited by our total blood volume? Are we limited by our maximal cardiac output? Which one of these is the limiter? And it would be it would be incredibly powerful to be able to figure out which one of these is the limiter and then cater the workouts to that limiter. And I, mm-hmm. I think at this point, we we don't have that, but we can sort of say, why don't we try and hit all of them and make sure they're all decent and then one of them won't limit us. Right. Absolutely. I think that's right. Just trying to make the rate limiting step less limiting. It, but we don't know what the rate limiting step right. is. So, so we have we, to improve all, all steps that might limit, limit us. Yeah. So that's uh, another, I guess, takeaway here is do the variety of workouts, do your strength training, do all these different things because you never know if that's the one limiter. You have to be willing to say that could be the limiter so i have to work on this even if you'd prefer to go do that one workout that you always do go do a variety and and try and improve in a bunch of different ways and that could end up being the the stopping point for you well your your limiter is probably not the thing that's in that one workout that you always do yeah it's likely the workout that you really don't like doing don't want to do and also the the thing if you do group rides and you always get you know trashed on this one climb or you know in the sprint everyone blows away from you or you know everybody knows in a group ride sort of uh you know it can suss out uh, where your limiters are pretty pretty easily if you're willing to kind of embrace them and say man i really got destroyed on that climb i think that that's a limiter for me yeah absolutely i think i think that's a good you know a good takeaway is just observation will probably tell you what where you're where you're limited or at least give you some hints and it's yeah it's probably not the things you like doing yeah um so the next thing i want to comment on with the vo2 max is the we talked a little bit about avo2 diff Uh, specifically there was an argument about whether or not it's trainable and the conclusion was we don't really know but i think the first step to determining if it's trainable and learning about avo2 diff more is measuring it that's the first step is can we measure it easily and then we can start making studies where we test it and we try and manipulate it through different actions that the rider does and there's actually not a lot of research in uh, measuring av diff specifically uh, there are a couple papers from the 80s giving methodologies for how to measure it and some of them are you know the issue with it is you need arterial blood and you need venous blood and you need to measure both and you know to draw blood like for a lactate test you have to stop the rider they're standing there you know you prick their ear or you know whatever and and then you measure it and in order to have some sort of study where you could continuously measure this is even harder so the the main way that they determine the oxygen content of blood is by passing light through it and seeing how the light refracts off the molecules and 
as the, the light changes, they can say, oh, this has 15% oxygen, this has 20% oxygen, whatever the number is. And um, I found a paper for a methodology where they essentially pull blood out of your arteries, pass it through the light measurement system, and then put it back into your arteries. And then another system where they pull it out of your veins, measure it, and put it back in your veins. And um, as you can tell, this is kind of, well, it's kind of over the top a little. It's it's a lot of work, a little, too. A little, little invasive. You gotta, yeah, lengthen the tube a little bit. You need a couple uh, extra a permissions of, from the university, you know, to engage yeah, in there's this a study. few There's a few things going on, right? And they... I think I've, I've shared with you, it's pretty easy with the light method to measure um, pulse oximetry, right? The, yep. How, you know, but, and those things are readily accessible, but that's not going to tell you everything you need to know. Uh, it's only going to give you a, a hint into the oxygenation of the blood in the, you know, but not the, not the difference or not the change there. Yep. So the, at this point, it is really difficult for us to even get the information on AV diff and that is that's kind of the limiting step in us understanding it more. So I guess the next step would be like, you know, we gave a, a potential PhD student, you know, everything they need for their thesis in the VO2 max episode. But the next step for that student would be convincing, you know, the professors or the community as a whole that this is an area to research and get some, some people interested in finding an easier way to measure it so that you can start doing studies to see how it changes and how we can improve it. Although you, it sounds like there's one you know, logistical hurdle there, right? Is if, if you need to find a better way to measure it, you have to validate your measurement with something. And it sounds like you're still going to have to pull some blood out of the arteries, put it back in after measuring and do the same thing with the veins to make sure that your measurement approach is valid. Yeah, except the, the measurement approach part you could use on regular individuals instead of like, say, elite athletes or trained athletes, which we know is a harder subset to get a hold of. So it could be potentially easier if, you know, you could even you could even test yourself as the as the researcher or um, find, you know, it's not hard to find people just to validate the measurement system. It's a lot harder to find a unique subpopulation that you're trying to research. Sure. So that's that's the follow up I have for the, the VO2 max episode. Um, the other area that I want to talk about, and I think it fits in as well on um, this whole idea that we've been walking around a bit of um, peripheral versus central fatigue and peripheral versus central adaptations and limiters. And one specific area that I think is interesting are these two papers that I found. They use the same methodology. And what they do is they look at the power production specific to each of the hips, knees, and ankles for a particular cyclist. And I think... It's interesting because they use kinetic equations. Essentially, each joint throughout the pedal stroke has a certain angular velocity. And if we know the angular velocity and we know the moment arm, we know the torque. And if we know the torque, we can then convert that into some power amount. And uh, I don't think you can get the actual power from just the speed and the moment arm, but if we know the total power and we know the percent contribution, then we can, you know, get out the the joint specific power. So it's essentially lots of linear equations and advanced mathematics and 
they probably have a script that they just run and it tells them all the answers but um, essentially they recorded a series of riders and they looked at them with different the first study and this was the original study um, they looked at six different powers at 90 cadence so specifically 250 400 550 and 700 and 850 so increasing by 150 watts each time and they did um, they took a three second sample at 90 cadence and they looked at you know how much each joint how much power was produced by each joint and i think the results are pretty interesting so hip extension power increased alongside the increase in total power but knee extension did not scale up with the increase in total power and uh, lastly knee flexion power increased with increasing power so it appears that you know at 700 and 850 watts there was a lot of hip extension power there was some knee flexion power but the knee extension didn't really seem to scale whereas um, at lower powers there was almost no knee flexion power no hamstring use and then the hip extension was you know moderate so I, I guess this is interesting because it could help us understand you know people specifically professional cyclists who can produce a lot of power you know what are they doing differently and it appears that the the study group was just uh, trained athletes not elite athletes but you know, even trained athletes increase their hamstring use and they increase their glute use at higher powers. So is that an indication we should be, you know, trying to make sure that our hamstrings and our glutes are robust enough to be able to use them at higher powers? I mean, I would, I would take that as a yes. So your, your hamstrings and glutes can provide a tremendous amount of power in, in terms of extension and pushing down on the pedals. So it seems to me like that would be um, obviously, I think there's an interesting thing there around what happens at the quad, right? It's like, it's like, well, the quad didn't maybe change that much over, you know, at least relative to the other muscle groups. And I guess the question is, how do we, are quads more efficient up front? And that's why we use them more. Um, or is it a matter of, you know, as you start to, you know, reach that peak power, you tap out your quads faster. And then it's the glutes and the hamstrings that that's what's left and that's what needs to kick in. And there's some, I think there's some interesting things to unravel there. Yeah. I, I think my takeaway from it, and I, I read this somewhere, I won't take credit for it is um, sort of, it's hard for a cyclist not to sort of love knee flexion or sorry, knee extension. We, we sort of wake up and we want to kick at our knee. Um, and I think it's really intuitive for even like kind of culturally to think big quads, you know, push, you know, slam down on the pedals as opposed to, you know, use your glutes to push the pedals. And so if you look at new riders, untrained riders, riders who, you know, they just ride their bike, they don't worry about how they pedal. It's super knee extension heavy, really quad heavy. And so it could be that because these are not elite athletes who, I think it, I think elite athletes probably do active training to increase their glute utilization. If you don't actively do that, it appears your initial reaction is use your quads. Once they're sort of toast, then your body has to figure out how to produce more power. Yeah, I think, I think that's fair, right? We 
you know, where you're basically from an untrained state, like quad first bias. Uh, and then we figure out how to use our glutes if we need to. Um, and maybe we don't need to, right? But I would say this is um, this is kind of limiting for the athlete, and especially I mean, the the reason the professional athletes likely have a lot of glute use and a lot of hamstring use is because, well, one, they're producing a lot of power, so we know that they need it, but two, because they're doing longer events, and the, the glutes have so much more muscle mass to distribute the force over that they don't tire out in the same way as if we force the quads to really do a lot of work. And, I think track cyclists, especially, especially sprint cyclists, are really known for their big quads. And that's because quads are good for making the power when you need it. And they can produce a lot of power in a short amount of time, but there's less mass. So they really start to fatigue quickly. And if you're going to do long efforts, if you're going to do even long high intensity efforts, like something like a time trial, you need more muscle mass than just what your quads can provide. So I would make the argument, um, you know, the, the reason that we see a lot of knee extension is it's natural, but if we really want to get fast, we really should be working on the glutes and hamstrings. So I have, I have my own little like pet hypothesis. Okay. Uh, imagine there's probably a way to test it, but it, it sort of, uh, goes along with what you're saying. I think we're, we're fairly well in alignment, which is like, yes, agree, like we by default, if nobody tells you anything and I ask you to get on the bike, you're going to be using your quads mostly. And, you know, if you stick with it long enough, um, the result will be that you actually get, you know, preferential vascularization and development of your quads. So it actually biases you even more. It reinforces that pattern and you don't get that adaptation in the glutes because you don't use them as much. And so you, it basically just builds upon itself and it's more efficient quads can handle more uh, blood to a point and make sure you can use your glutes um, anaerobically, but not aerobically. And that becomes a problem. And so you just, it's like, just feed the quad part just feeds on itself um, because it's just reinforcing itself. And until uh, either you can't do enough power or there's some other breaking point. I thought you were going to say for your pet hi hypothesis, because I, I know you have said this before is um, everyone sits so much that our hamstrings are tight, our glutes are dysfunctional, and the reason we're quad dominant is because we just don't have the capacity to use the glutes and hamstrings. We've we've turned them off. Okay, yeah, that's that's fair too. I I do believe that, but I think the the former was a little bit more um, still hypothesis state for okay. me. Oh, so you've sort of this is more novel. Yeah, this I mean okay. this is this one's still. Very, very much untested. I feel pretty confident just in, from observation that like, yes, this is true. And I'm not the only person saying that in the world. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I don't know if I'm the only person saying this one about quad development, you know, building on itself and kind of leaving the glutes out in the cold. Yeah. So how would you test that? Uh, there's ways to tell the sort of neural activation of specific muscles. Is that correct? You can, yep. You can look at, well, there's a couple of ways. So you can look at EMG at the muscle level. Um, you could also look at, um, uh, like TMS or the, you know, inverse of that, which looking at the, uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation and or looking at that sort of signal and trying to understand what's happening at the cortical level in the brain uh, and understand like how, how much activation is there. But I'm even thinking like that. So that's one way is neural, but I'm also thinking from, uh, 
physiologic standpoint, like the blood flow. And I imagine you could look at the vascularity of that muscle tissue and have some way to understand like, oh yes, this is a very vascular muscle. I mean, if you look at a, you do get, you know, new vessels and improved blood supply with training. And you see this in cyclists, right? Like part of it's their lean that you see their veins, but part of it is that that's developed as well uh, to handle demands. And so I think, I think there's probably a way to measure that somehow in the tissue and understand like how much, how much blood flow is really going there. Mm, and, and sort of the capillary density and uh, those mm-hmm. sorts of things. Yeah. So there, there are I mean, some muscle specific metrics that we could look at. Yep. And I, my hypothesis would be that if you measured it over time, at least in a, you know, untrained novice rider, you would be heavily biased towards quads unless you made some intervention to get them to use their glutes more. Yeah. Speaking of, um, if we're trying to get out of this cycle and I guess, um, I would even make the argument most of us are quad dominant unless we've actively tried not to be quad dominant. We've, unless we've made some active intervention, we're probably quad dominant. So do you have suggestions on transitioning away from that and being a more, you know, we don't want to disregard the quads, but we need the glutes and hamstrings if we want to put out, you know, the most watts we can. So, I mean, I think there's a couple things, right? So there's hip extension there and there's knee flexion. Uh, with those muscle groups. And so, you know, I think you've talked about this, your, your idea of a pedal stroke and sort of like cueing for how do you have an optimal pedal stroke? I think that's going to help you get the hamstring engagement uh, below like from six o'clock and, and coming back to that, that part, like maybe, I don't know, four to eight or something uh, in that range in the hamstrings to kick. And I don't know if you want to dive into that a little bit. I guess the big thing is um, they, they always say it feels like scraping mud off the bottom of your shoe. That's the feeling. And the idea is basically at around that four or five o'clock, we have maximally extended our knee. So you want to you want to stop squeezing the quad so you can start to do knee flexion. And essentially, I think that if, you, if you're going to do on bike pedaling work, you should focus on one movement pattern of the pedal at a time. So uh, I would say there's four main ones, uh, hip extension, hip flexion, knee extension, and knee flexion. And if I were, this is a great thing to do while you're warming up, is to only pull up on the pedals if you want to engage the hamstring specifically. So you're, you're going to end up putting power into the rest of the pedal stroke, but really focus on scooping underneath the bottom of the pedal stroke and do that for five minutes with both legs. Maybe do a minute with only one leg, a minute with only the other leg, and just really get that neural, uh, you know, firing of that part of the pedal stroke. And then you can do the same thing with the other areas. I would say it seems like from this study, the other area to focus on is hip extension with the emphasis on not on slamming down on the pedals, but pushing your femur backwards. Because of course that's that's hip extension. So um, focus on. I, I like the cue of like the top of your knee should go backwards, and really at the top of the pedal stroke, focus on pushing your knee kind of backwards and and doing that for five or ten minutes while you're getting out to your interval location. That can be a really good way to just start to tickle on. You know, this is a muscle I need to use and um, try and improve your activation of it. Yeah, and I guess the other you know other pieces there are you know making sure you have adequate hip flexor length. 
especially when you start to talk about the glutes and trying to get that hip extension piece, because if your hip flexors are really tight, you're, you're kind of fighting against yourself and maybe inhibiting the activation of the glutes there. And so that's also going to influence the position of your pelvis potentially on the bike. And so if you're in like a, you know, a really far anterior tilt because your hip flexors are so tight, that might make it a little bit harder for you to activate the glutes. So getting back more towards a, a neutral spine, uh, making that easier for you to get good glute activation. The other thing I've found personally and like trying to train and engage the glutes. And so maybe not the first two minutes of your warm up, but is actually putting a little bit more resistance on the pedals and dropping the cadence. Uh, for me personally has helped me like find that activation and find like find that muscle a little bit more. And I, I guess that's consistent with the results from the study as, you know, as load went up, as power went up, you're able to get more firing. And so for me, I, I've found that putting a little bit more load on the pedals, I'm, I'm able to engage that and sort of connect that feeling a little bit better. The other thing I would do to try and get the hamstrings and glutes more involved is active um, off the bike work on them, specifically strength training. But um, there is some strength training that if you want to listen to, we've done, I guess, two episodes now on strength training. Um, that's that's a little bit different than this kind of strength training. That's, uh, you know, big movement patterns, sort of replicating the major actions of the sport. Whereas I would say doing pointed exercises on this one particular area that you want to improve is more along the lines of if you want to get your hamstrings involved, go to the hamstring, you know, the knee flexion machine and, you know, slowly increase the weight, you know, three by eight or um, you know, whatever. I, I think that you had a study one time that said essentially the the number of reps kind of had no effect as long as you went to failure. So, you know, whatever you want to, whatever rep number you want to go to, um, go use the knee flexion machine, you know, emphasize squeezing the hamstrings and even that will help you use them more because they're used to firing at least. Yeah, I think, I, I do think it's important to, really be able to also isolate that muscle, right? So glutes, like if you do, I don't know, glute bridges, for example, that's a great exercise to help you find your glutes. So you, you know what you're looking for when you get on the bike, I think, or even sometimes doing a little bit of that before you get on the bike. So you're, you know, you've already got that muscle firing before you start to do your pedal stroke. Yeah. And, um, I think the other one is maybe the, um, it's, it is hard to get a glute machine. The advantage of the machines, or some people would say the disadvantage of the machines, is you can really isolate that one muscle. So there aren't really any machines for glutes specifically, but like you said, glute bridges are good. And then, um, I don't know if we have to edit this out. The uh, My friends always called it the birthing machine, the one that does uh, glute meds. So it's the one where you push your... Uh, Spread the legs laterally. Yeah, you push your legs out um, to the sides. And what that does is work on your glute med, which is an important muscle for uh, balancing your knee tracking in the, in the pedal stroke. So if you, tuck, if you tend to tuck your knee in in the pedal stroke, it could be an indication that you have glute med weakness. And um, we know that having a knee that doesn't align linearly is a, a major cause of knee pain over time. So you know, it's not the glute max, so it's not the biggest powerhouse, but. Yeah. But if it, if it keeps you from losing power, that has value as well. I yep. mean, I, so I, I'm partial to not using that machine. Like I would say, take a, get a band, put it around your knees, a loop of, a loop of TheraBand, put it around your knees and then stand with your feet roughly in, you know, your pedal stance 
distance, that width, and do some squats right there. Because now you're going to get the motion, the, the knee and hip flexion and extension that you need while you're cycling and also engage those muscles. And it's a little bit more functional because in the specific position, a little bit more specific. If you want to get real crazy, stand on one leg and do it. And that way you're going to get like the specific pattern of just the one leg doing it and that extra stability. Um, but you know, I think two legs is good for most of us. Yeah. We're not, we're not all professional mountain bikers here. So the, uh, the more advanced core stuff might have to, might be a couple years away for the rest of us. But yeah, I think that's, that'll, it's more specific to what you're looking to do on the bike. Yep. So the second paper, it used the same methodology. It was uh, another author, but they said, I want to replicate this, but with varying cadences. So we're not all 90 RPM riders. And this could give us some indication as to, um, you know, why, why do professional cyclists ride at 105 and the rest of us ride at 85? Um, or even if you go back to the human power generation episode, we talked about how uh, a lot of people were able to produce maximal maximal steady state power at like 60 cadence with 180 millimeter crank arms and um, then why you know why aren't professional cyclists using this technique so um, the study used uh, maximal power for three seconds that was the effort and they did it at 60 90 120 150 and 180 rpms and how, how many how many other test subjects actually got all the way up to 180 i want to know um i think they said the average was 178 for the okay um, that's, 180 that's pretty good yeah and um they did it was all seated so that's the other thing to note which that's that's really impressive well i i think seated is likely easier than standing to get the cadence up just based on riding a track bike but also the track bike helps because it kind of pushes you over the top it keeps you going yep. yeah yeah um, but the the results were the 120 and the 150 RPM were the highest total power, whereas 60 RPM was the lowest total power, and then it started to decay as you got to 180. So, uh, you know, initial reaction is this is why track sprinters are doing 135 or 140 RPMs. They're right in that range of maximal seated power production. Um, the other thing specific to joint power was knee extension again remained constant, hip extension increased, and knee flexion increased. Um, and this time I actually have percents, so the hip extension increased by 18% from the lower values to um, knee flexion increased uh, 15%. So 18% hip extension increase, 15% knee extension increase as the cadence went up. So I, th I think the big conclusion here, the first paper was on, you know, say we increase the power, what happens? We use, we use our hips more, we use our hamstrings more. And then, okay, what if we increase the cadence? Well, we also use our hips more and we also use our hamstrings more. So it seems like if you wanna get higher power or you wanna get higher cadence, you gotta get the hips going, gotta get the glutes going, you gotta get the hamstrings going. I think that makes sense to me uh, in terms of right, if you, if you hold power steady, right, you, and you pedal faster, then what, what has to happen, right? Like you've reduced the relative, you have to have more into relative forces less, right? 
Yeah, so that's what's interesting. As you increase cadence, the force per pedal stroke is lower uh, mm-hmm. because work is force times time, and you know each pedal stroke is less time. So, yeah, it's it's interesting because um, it, this could give us some insight into professional cyclists why they're always such high cadence. It could be because they are emphasizing lowering their total muscle mass. They you know, it could just be that in a well-trained individual, it's it's just optimal to decrease this total force. And um, it's also interesting because we know that pros have much better glute utilization. So you can see maybe they have a high cadence because they have good glute utilization mm-hmm. and, and hamstrings as well. So yeah, that's, that's interesting. Um, but I don't see any downside to engaging your glutes and hamstrings more. That's my conclusion. Yeah, it really seems like, uh, you know, one paper, it's like you could find an excuse to, uh, you know, skimp on the glute bridges. But I think if you're one of those riders who, you know, this is so common, especially in California, are these um, really big riders who they do the crit course at like 70 cadence the whole time. And, um, you know, yeah, they're, they're beasts. They're really strong. But... Um, the big issue with that is the they're not so dynamic, and the the reason for that is it's hard to get the power up when you're just chugging along at seventy cadence. It's hard to then transition forward because the force is so high. You're in your biggest gear, and you know if we want to learn how to be a dynamic rider, this is also the reason track riders will generally have a higher cadence is because to go from one ten to one twenty is a lot easier than to go from seventy to eighty. And you'll get, you know, it's just easier to change speed, easier to react dynamically in the race. So if you want to be pro, you want to be able to uh, be dynamic like the pros, it's a good idea to get your cadence up. And um, also, if you want to be as strong as the pros, it's a good idea to get your power up. And we know that when you increase your power, we know that you increase your cadence, you got to use your glutes and your hamstrings more. So uh, I don't know, how, how many times do I have to say it before we can convince everyone know to do glute bridges yeah no i think that's i think that's perfect and i think you know it's such a key point is it's so much easier to accelerate from a higher baseline cadence and that's so that's so important in racing the the ability to accelerate uh, accelerate readily and respond to the situation Uh, like yeah if you want to be a a diesel rider and ride whatever 200 miles great 70 70 cadence is awesome for that right because you're you're just going along and you're getting there uh but if you want to be able to accelerate and change pace and, uh, you know, respond to moves or make a move, uh, that ability to accelerate and have, you know, just tick up your cadence a bit and change things is, is huge. Yeah. And I, I do some glute and hamstring work, but after reading this, I think I'm really going to start to emphasize it more. And the, the, the big area that I'm concerned about for myself is I, I really start to have dead legs at the end of you know, four-hour road races. And part of that is low glycogen stores. Part of that is, uh, you know, dehydration. Part of it is you just rode for four hours. But I think that if you can keep the force down by keeping the cadence up, you get more muscle mass utilization once you start to engage the hamstrings and glutes. Hopefully your legs start to feel fresh at the end, which this is what differentiates the professional cyclist from the rest of us is they ride for four hours and then they still set a Strava KOM on their favorite climb and you know we can't do that so 
one way that we could potentially improve that is to push the the work onto more uh, muscle mass by uh, uh, increasing glute mass, increasing hamstring mass, and also using them in the pedal stroke. And then um, hopefully we get to see uh, some some impressive uh, riding at the end of the race. Yeah, I mean, I think this is goes maybe hand in hand with what we talked about, of, you know, burning fat, doing our base training, and conserving our carbohydrates. This is like distributing the energy demand across the muscle groups to conserve, you know, maximum force produ- production capacity for the end of the race when you need it. Um, yeah. So I think there's a lot of a lot of similarities there between the two things conceptually. Uh, and how they you know, pan out towards the end of an event for you or the end of a ride, how, however that may be. And I think the other thing is like, yes, to do your glute bridges or whatever glute exercise that you want to do. Uh, but then you got to apply it on the bike. Like if you do it, great. You just did a whole bunch of glute bridges. That's fantastic. Like you're, you probably increased your glute muscle mass a bit or certainly your ability to activate the glutes. But if you don't translate that with specific on bike drills, it's not going to be as valuable and you're probably not going to see the same results in your riding. Absolutely. So Todd, that's, uh, that's all I have for this episode. Um, I guess, uh, if I have to say it one more time, please, you know, work on your glutes, work on your hamstrings, practice pulling up a little bit. You know, uh, if you looked at the curves, it, there's, um, so we talked about this in the human power generation episode. There's a lot of change over the the pedal strokes. So at three o'clock, the even if you're only producing 300, 400 watts, your peak power is over a thousand at three o'clock. But it's because there's a lot of zero and potentially negative power points throughout the rest of the pedal stroke that the average ends up being the 300 that you were aiming for. So. If you looked at the curves on the back side of the pedal stroke, the it does increase when they had hamstring use, but it was some 200, you know, effective 200 watts on the back side. So about a fifth of the total power production of the three o'clock position. So you know, it's still not that much, but it's it's just enough. You know, 200 watts on the back side of the pedal stroke that gives you an extra 50 watts total. Uh, you know, in your power and who doesn't want an extra 50 Watts at a threshold or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, that's so key. And, you know, just a nice complete pedal stroke, good power from all the muscle groups. Uh, I think that's going to yield a a more complete rider and probably a a more efficient and faster rider. All right. So um, Todd, do you have anything else? Well, as always, if you're enjoying our podcast or you have any feedback for us, certainly, you know, give us a review. We do appreciate that feedback helps us make a better product. We do take that under consideration very seriously. So, you know, leave us a note wherever you listen. Uh, Of course, if you like it, you know, or you don't, you know, don't want to share it with your friends, that's fine, but we would encourage you to do that. Maybe just don't share it with your competitors. And until next time, uh, remember to keep the rubber side down. Thanks for listening.